0: This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. Welcome back to our conversation. We join our host, Trevor, in part two of a three-part conversation with Professor Loretta Coleman Brown, who talks about practicing living in the present moment.
1: I realized that there was this part of me that I could listen to or talk to and uh, that I actually had an opportunity to think about things and reflect on them. And so that's actually my first recollection of having an inner life.
0: Currently, Professor Brown serves as spiritual companion and director, a writer, retreat leader, and speaker who promotes contemplative spirituality in everyday life, as well as the life and work of Howard Thurman and uncovering the peace in one's heart. If you missed part one, we encourage you to listen to the previous episode to hear about her journey with her own heart. In part two of this conversation, we explore discovering an inner life and how spiritual practices can bring resiliency and hope.
2: Once again, Professor Brown, thank you for uh, joining us for another session as we continue our three-part session on your uh, life and wisdom and also your connection and wisdom with uh, Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. So I hope you're well today and uh, welcome to another episode.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I am well today.
2: Well, I'm glad. Today we're focusing on spiritual practices in relation to hope and resiliency as we, as we sort of meander our way to uh, sacred activism next week. My first question for you today as we explore this and as you share is, when did you realize you had an inner life and when did you make a conscious commitment to this spiritual life and calling? And what did that look like?
1: Well, I, I believe that I noticed I had an inner life at about the age of six or seven. When one Sunday morning, my parents sent me outside to look for a quarter or something on the front porch. And uh, I must have gone about two or three times. And on the third or fourth trip, I went back in and I told them that I couldn't find it. And so that's when they said, oh, we really wanted you to pick up the Sunday newspaper. And it made me wonder why they didn't ask me for the Sunday newspaper in the first place. But I realized that I was reflecting on that and that I was looking at my parents in a new and different way. And so it was really the beginning of having some understanding that I could actually reflect on what was going on in my life. I believe that the next time that I thought about an inner life and about spirituality more deeply was in college when I was introduced to a number of books about spirituality, um, Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, Be Here Now. There were just a number of books that were popular at that time. In addition to having uh, my roommate's professor come and teach us a a Tibetan meditation chant. um, Shortly after college, I started uh, TM, Transcendental Meditation, But as with most of these things, it does take discipline to keep up with them. And uh, as I moved into graduate school, those kinds of ideas and time for those kinds of things fell by the wayside. So it really wasn't until 1984 that I was on leave at a think tank at Stanford. And I ran across a copy of The Course in Miracles And because I was on leave, I had time to actually start reading it. And uh, I was so intrigued with it that uh, I I realized that it might be a a text that would help me for a long time, but it also emphasized taking time to be quiet and, and to listen from inside. So, The next time that I really had to utilize my spiritual resources was before and during my heart transplant. I had a series of mystical experiences, so it really helped me to understand my connection to something bigger than myself. And uh, I certainly, in the midst of many of my medical and hospitalizations, I've always meditated in the morning, even in a hospital bed. And so, of course, when I decided to pursue becoming a spiritual director companion was when I realized that I had to be very committed to a practice, that I had to show up every day for prayer um, because there was no way that I could uh, hear this the the spirit or guide anybody else without that.
2: For, for you and your connection with Howard Thurman, uh, Professor Brown, what would, what would be the... Um, uh, what are spiritual practices for you? Why do them?
1: Well, I think that spiritual practices lead us to a growing awareness of the light within. They lead us to some recognition that we're, are connected to something other than our individual autonomous selves. Um, And I believe that that sense of light within symbolizes hope. Um, It's a light that may get dim from time to time but never goes out. And so, I feel that these spiritual practices allow me to nurture that, well, I won't say nurture the light, but to be more aware of it. Um, So definitely, as I mentioned before, I sit in silence. Um, Stillness, I call it, I love it uh, uh, daily. Um, I'm also an advocate of mantras when you're in um, a bad state, like you're anxious or depressed or whatever. And I, I tell uh, people as well as utilize myself, sometimes scriptures from the Bible um, or something that's inspirational just to say over and over and over again so that you can calm your racing mind and reconnect. Of course, going outside is always good because there's a certain stillness in nature that is mm-hmm. calming and soothing. I really think that stillness is God energy. And I just, I love love it whenever I can fast myself in any of it. Uh, and then I think that it's important to journal. Journaling can be a a, a spiritual practice that allows us to reflect on the things that are happening in our lives um, and where spirit may be a part of that. And I'm certainly a strong advocate of naps and rest because for me, my best guidance comes either early in the morning or when I've just awakened from a nap. There's that, I don't know, liminal space or... um, Just, you know, you're not totally engaged yet. And I hear all kinds of things. I I also uh, engage in a practice that comes from a book called The Artist's Ways, doing morning pages. And I get lots of information in morning pages. It's not, I don't consider it journaling because I basically throw away, but it's really sort of declutters the mind so that the creative spirit can come through. I think that was the intention of it in the first place, uh, that, that particular technique, but it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful to kind of clear out all of that so that you can be ready for whatever way spirit is gonna guide you that day. And then of course, there's exercise, whether that be yoga, qigong, tai chi, running, walking, I I think it's important for us to uh, give our bodies some kind of um, nurturance through obviously uh, good food, but also in movement. Um, And I think there are ways to be able to connect uh, with ourselves and with spirit by engaging in those kinds of physical, spiritual practices
2: the way you speak of spiritual practices there's a uh, a holisticness to them it's it's just not about uh, following just one sort of practice but you have like a whole series of them uh, if you're going to give advice to somebody as a, spirit, a spiritual director which you are how uh, what the advice would be how would you advise someone to find what fits for their life
1: well yeah it's like a menu at the restaurant, right? You try things and some you like and some you don't. but it's you know it's very much connected to something we spoke about in the first broadcast, the sound of the genuine. And so you know you've come upon something that's genuine for you. and uh, I you know people have all kinds of opportunities to engage in spiritual practices. You know, there's sound, you know, kind of sound meditation and uh, guided meditation. And so I have just found that these practices suit me. And I think that uh, it's important to open up your mind and to try things um, and to find those things that really feed your spirit, because that's really what it's about. It's like we pay lots of attention to our bodies and. We pay lots of attention to our intellects, but we think, okay, on Sunday for two hours, I'm gonna go feed my spirit. And there's so many ways to feed your spirit. I mean, I love to garden. And, and, and it's such a spiritual, creative act to think. that I'm putting this seed in this dirt and this beautiful plant is gonna come about. It flowers. And then of these flowers come green beans. I mean, I was having green beans last night for dinner. And, I, you know, every year when I do this, I just go through the same awe that I can put this seed in the ground. And I'm going to have this lovely meal and have enough green beans to give away to other people. And so there are so many opportunities to be a part of that kind of transcendent life. Uh, and it can be as simple as grow, uh, growing beautiful flowers or growing wonderful uh, vegetables to feed your body, uh, but but they also feed your soul at the same time, and I think that's important to know.
2: How did Howard Thurman come to such a depth of wisdom? In in so many ways, he he writes in um, Jesus uh, and the Disinherited about. Um, the nature of systematic racism, as we'd say today, I don't know if he would describe it back then that way, as an African American United States. But but he he came to this profound wisdom that you share and and it's sort of been buried in some ways. Can you give a little bit of history of how he came to be who he is and become in some ways an ordinary mystic that encourages all of us to find this? Yes, yeah,
1: so Howard Thurman was born on November 18th, 1899 in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, His family soon moved to Daytona Beach, Florida. And I think he was born, he was born a mystic and a contemplative. He had such amazing experiences walking along the Halifax River or walking along the Atlantic beach area uh, which was not too far from his home uh, he some people describe him as a nature mystic but he spent a lot of time outside and he had these experiences in which he felt like he was one with the with everything with the with the ocean with the the uh, trees um, and he really gained a lot of strength from um, being outside, uh, and from having uh, uh, conversations with an a oak tree in his backyard, uh, which is where he first began to meditate. Uh, I, he really felt like his reaction really to the to the overwhelmingly oppressive and insidious racism that was a part of the Jim Crow South of the United States in the early 1900s was to go inside to God. And uh, I think he found that the more that he did this, uh, the more that he felt freer um, as a a spirit. He was fortunate to have a grandmother, Miss Nancy Ambrose, who had herself been a slave. And uh, she continued to recount the same story to Howard Thurman and his sisters about uh, learning that she was a holy child of God. And I think she imprinted that on his mind as this is your primary identity. And although he doesn't talk about a spiritual identity, not only did she inoculate him in many ways, but she also helped to unveil a spiritual identity. I think we all have one, but just like everything else, it has to be cultivated. It has to be developed, and so uh, and they're you know now doing research showing that uh, there is this intergenerational passing on of spirituality, often from parent to child or grandparent to child. In his case, uh, she also. Um, was illiterate and so she would have him to read the Bible to her, but she would not allow him to read certain Pauline letters about slaves obeying their masters. And he was always curious about this, like, you know, like, what was that about? And so, and actually in one uh, one conversation, uh, he describes how he went to her as, as later as a uh, adult and she said, you know, that's not something I wanted, you know, you to be reading about on a regular basis. So, so I think it's that combination of uh, um, this wonderful uh, example of his grandmother who just lived out her spirituality um, and mother. They, his father died when he was seven. Uh, that was another turning point because his, uh, Father was a more of an intellectual man than a spiritual religious i should say more religious type and so when he died the ch- the local church that his grandmother and mother attended did not want to preach his funeral because they said he had died outside of christ and and a a, a visiting preacher chose uh said said he would do it he he, he uh he agreed but he chose the occasion to condemned his father to death because, I mean, to hell, excuse me, to hell, because he didn't attend church. And so Thurman really, you know, had these questions as a young man. He's very bright, just super, super bright. Like, so wait, what kind of religion is this? that <laughs> You know, you get condemned to hell if you don't go to church. So So these are the kinds of things that were sort of, that he walked around reflecting on for a long time. And I think it's what gave him the wisdom along with his regular spiritual practice of sitting. You know, he advocated that you should, in every day, stop and, and, and sit before God. Uh, so that, along with the fact that, uh, you know, he says in a number of places that he prayed to God, but he talked to Jesus. So there is something important about having a personal intimate relationship with God. I think that many people who are, um, who either become contemplatives or um, are ordinary mystics, they have an intimate relationship. It's not something that they, you know, talk about once a week at church or sing about, but that they can actually have an ongoing conversation. And it's, it's fascinating in some ways because I've had people who have come to spiritual direction, who can't do that. They, you know, I had one gentleman who said, well, you know, God is mystery to me. So I I don't know how to have a conversation with God. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but, but that's, for and, and for me, you know, I think my first, uh, and I do ask people, I ask them, so who, who do you feel closest to? Is it God the Father? Is it Jesus? Or is it the Holy Spirit? And people do have different uh, uh, selections. And so, but for me, I think I was best buddies with, you know, the Holy Spirit as a child. You know, going out, sitting in the wind and um, just feeling the spirit around me. Uh, And, you know, later, you know, feeling close to to Jesus and and to God. I think I just had to alter my image of what God was. Um, But so, so Howard Thurman, in addition to his profound intellect and his regular spiritual experiences, that's, that's where w- wisdom emerges. You know, it emerges from the depths of us. And I think he then devoted his life. He was very committed, um, I think after seminary that he was gonna devote his life to the feeding of of the, um, the hunger of the spirit, of all spirits. Um, and he was very, you know, uh, intent on trying to bring people together, trying not to have these, these what he would call artificial barriers of religion, or denomination, or race, or gender, or whatever it is that people thought, well, that makes you, you know, us and them. There's, you know, in the he always said, in the presence of God, none of that matters. Um, so he, he he spent his life. Uh, And in some ways, you know, we often think about uh, other mystics who lived in cloistered religious communities, you know, praying, you know, five times a day. Howard Thurman, of course, that was not his path, but that commitment was still there. And uh, he uh, certainly realized that by never. Choosing to do anything else but devote himself to helping people um, to move beyond these things that he felt um, divided of God's beloved creation.
2: It's really interesting as you, as you talk about his life that uh, with Howard Thurman in his writings, there seems to be this depth of self-honesty. And I'm I'm wondering, do you from, uh, fr- do you think spiritual practices uh, lead us to self-honesty, and not in a way that's judgmental, but a way that sort of frees us? Uh, do do you ever have that sense or get that sense from yourself, or Howard? Thurman? Definitely
1: from Howard Thurman. He he believed that we are always operating under the scrutiny of God. And again this is not about going to church this is about your own conscience um, and it's usually only when uh, you can uh, only when that you can quiet yourself that you have an opportunity to actually see or feel um, this sense of uh, um, of quiet, you know, of of quietness that uh, like, just for example, uh, in one of his more um, famous uh, meditations, How Good to Center Down, he talks about how important it is to uh, uh, quiet ourselves. And he says, uh, and, and part of it is, you know, he first talks, you know, a bit about we look at ourselves in this waiting moment, the kinds of people we are. The questions persist. What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of our doings? What are we, where are we trying to go? So he, he puts those questions out there, which are all, you know clearly about scrutiny of self. But then he says, over and over the questions beat in upon the waiting moment as we listen Floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there is a sound of another kind, a deeper note, which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered. Our spirits refresh as we move back into the traffic of our daily realm. With the peace of the eternal in our step, how good it is to center down. So just in that one meditation, not only are you called to look at yourself, but at the same time, he's saying, you're not even gonna get clarity on that unless you quiet yourself, right? Um, And that that can, he believed that every time you had an encounter with God, it should change you and loosen up some of the stuff that you may have internalized, that may not be true about who you are, and certainly who God created you to be. Those are, you know, th- there, there are lots of things that we take on. Um, I call them imposed identities that may not necessarily be true about us.
2: Yeah, in, the, in Jesus and the Disinfected, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he has one part where he's talking about um. The hypocrisy of deception and uh, both with the oppressed and the oppressor. But when, and he talks about various ways you can, we deal with deception in our lives, which often we, we don't talk about anymore because we feel it's too negative. But he says you have to replace uh, the hypocrisy of deception with sincerity and 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 if the oppressed can and the disinherited the dispossessed can do that with the oppressor it throws back the truth upon the oppressor but i was thinking or feeling that 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 happens in spiritual practices with oneself too doesn't it like sometimes in this in the deep silence uh there's this deep vulnerability and if we're sincere with that, it gets thrown back on us. And like you said, something, you can't help but be changed.
1: Yes. Well, and I think what's important about not only that section of Jesus and the disinherited, but also even in spiritual practice is that it always goes back to the source. That, that little section there, it's not a little section, it's actually a big section because there's a piece of wisdom that is just priceless. So, oftentimes in any relationship or situation where there's a power differential, people may f- find themselves acting in a uh, way to either flatter. A powerful other, or to, and, 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 and in the case that he speaks of, unmerited flattery, right? That you know, you're giving all this uh, uh, praise to someone who is not deserving of it necessarily. And so, the antidote to that is not only sincerity, but sincerity because you realize who the source is. The source of all your needs is not this powerful other, it's God. And if you can remember that God is the source, then that's who you go to for what you need. You don't have to butter up the boss. (laughs) You don't don't have to make a special dinner to get whatever you need. You go to God for what you need. And, as you say, in spiritual practice, you know, we, some of these things come back on us, yes. And if they are things that are preventing us from growing, from moving on, then we need to offer those things up for healing. To say, okay, I know that I lie a lot, or I know that uh, I, I could be better at uh, being more compassionate, or whatever it is. You you ask for help with that, and it comes, and so it's not like okay you discover something and you're stuck in it, right? I think everything can can be healed, short of you know a physical limitation that might be caused by some kind of genetic or uh, physiological or neurological disorder that you know you can't get out of, even though I think that that uh, human spirits who appear that way. Um, are there for a reason, you know? They're usually there to teach us something. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I think all things can be healed. And so, he's really talking about don't give your power um, to these other people by by uh, trying to work around them in deceptive ways. You don't have to do that if you're a holy child of God.
2: And Howard Thurman, um, yeah, he talks about and And you've and you've talked about yourself uh, that there's this profound faith in life that nothing can destroy. He seems to come back to that uh, like in different modes or metaphors that um, that there's nothing there's nothing that can be destroyed and and uh, in some ways, I hear you saying spiritual practices are a way to find this and have faith in this.
1: spiritual practices allow you to remember that you are a spirit. That's really the sort of basic problem that most people have. They're walking around thinking they are bodies, when in fact they're spirits. And when you get to the place of understanding and knowing that you're a spirit, that spirit that was created by God can never be destroyed. It may change form. It may not be in this physical realm at some point, but it cannot be destroyed. And so, and, and that's exactly what Thurman is saying, that Jesus was trying to teach his own people, which is this light that you have within you, this the, the spirit that you are, cannot be assailed. You know, people can hurl, Insults at you. They can throw rocks at you. They can do all that stuff. But that spirit will always prevail. So don't don't let these people psychologically imprison you. Don't let don't let them convince you that you are something other than a holy child of God. It's such a, a a key piece of wisdom. Uh, but I think that's that's. Part of the issue is that people get confused and they see things in, in more physical and material ways. And if you're talking about spirit and spiritual practices, spiritual practices are practices to help you wake up to know that you're spirit. And so you're not really, in many cases, bothered by all these other things, physical things that may be happening in the world.
2: It sometimes seems in, in in the West and unfortunately Christianity's been colluding with empire for quite a long time that either spiritual practices were forgotten or sort of pushed to the side Uh, it seems I don't know how you feel about this and what you'd like to say but it seems like spirituality and spiritual practices are a threat often to the dominant power structures
1: Well, somewhere along the line, and I'm not quite sure exactly when it happened, but I suspect it was in the forming of the early church. And certainly when Constantine came into power, the church became associated with the empire. And uh, ever since then, it's an institution, right? And so once you institutionalize something, it can take on a whole different meaning and I think that's part of what Thurman was trying to say and what I've learned as well, is that somewhere along the line, the true message of Jesus got lost. Um, and it you know, became changed by the ways in which we as more human beings change things so that they fit what we need. Um, and he was certainly most Concerned about American Christianity and how it had been corrupted um, by this idea of power and race, um, you know, he was questioned, particularly when he visited India, about like how can you be a Christian seriously <laughs> um, when in fact you know they're stopping services to lynch people and they're they are uh, not allowing you to sit next to each other. Like, what kind of religion is that? So. Uh, he He understood that something had gone wrong along the way, and I think with this classic book Jesus and the disinherited, he really wanted to to show that and to help you know other people begin to grasp the real the real meaning of christianity and he 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 walked around with that question of so wait why should someone who is marginalized or dispossessed? Why would they want to become a Christian? You know, because part of the missionary zeal yeah. of, of uh, many places that uh, were colonized, or you know, I mean, it's like, wait a minute, you're colonizing me, so why do you want me to become? My, you know, what you, so it's a great question, um, and he so he wanted to look in there to see in the Gospels, particularly. What was it that Jesus was saying to people who were, um, as he described it, with their backs against the wall? And he was able to identify Jesus as a person who was himself disinherited and dispossessed, living in Roman occupied territory as a, as a poor Jew. So, yeah.
2: You're yeah, not a, not a, a no. white Christian.
1: No, as a matter of fact, I was listening to a podcast the other day by Matthew Wright and he said, there are no white people in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Those would be your traditional Middle Eastern people, so yeah. but uh yeah.
2: In some ways to to like to to have a spiritual practice is to invite subversiveness into your life.
1: Well uh
2: Do you think what do you well, think? Well I think of that?
1: that's a little biased.
2: <laughs> that's a little biased? Sure. Um, Say why.
1: I mean subversive in what way? That it's not following the convention that could be, as we just said, corrupted itself? You know, how is it subversive?
2: What do you do you think it's subversive well, put it this way, it's subversive to the powers that are in power in terms of like, what happens if you listen to that uh, sound of the genuine in yourself because you, you take uh, 20 minutes a day or you um, walk in nature? Uh, will that upset the, the stru- structures of so- society eventually? So it's subversive not, not to... It's subversive to those who hold power. I don't know. It's just a...
1: No, I, I understand, a understand the thought, but... It's like, well, so whose power are you aligning yourself with? Are you aligning yourself with the power of the state or the power of God?
2: That's the question.
1: (laughs) Right, I mean, so, and are you suggesting that to align yourself with the power of God is to be subversive to the state? I, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I mean, it sounds like that would be the case but, but, yes. but, I think that that's the whole point. The whole point is that we are trying to evolve, you know, mm-hmm. in our consciousness and and who we are as as spiritual beings and as God created us, to begin to let go of some of these things that perhaps maybe are not in the best interest of all people. so, uh, and I mean, it was certainly the. It, it's been the case for a long time. I mean, in many societies, even in the Old Testament, right? There's always somebody in power. Um, but I think we've always been moving towards, and continue to move towards, the restoration of God's beloved creation, which is really about unity and oneness. So, it, if in fact uh, it up upends the state, well, okay. I mean, I. I, 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 uh, I so, you know, so you have sort of two ways to think about that. Well, if you're a person who's part of that disinherited category, well, so what, right, you know? Um, but on the other end, I think I've, I always land on the spiritual end, on, on the end with God, which is that I think God is more powerful than that, and that uh, we will continue to see, and I'm surely way past my lifetime, um, changes in how the world operates um, and uh, I'm certainly I'm sure that Jesus was considered subversive at the time, really subversive, right? Which is probably what ended up getting him killed. Martin Luther King, probably, you know, subversive at the time, ended up getting, you know, so, so any time that uh, uh, you are representing uh, the way of God and people are not necessarily in that same, at that same level of consciousness, there's going to be pushback and there's going to be people who don't want you around because you are upsetting the, the power structure as it is at the time.
2: So if that's the case sometimes, maybe not all the time, how do you stay true to your calling and your spiritual practices and work with fear and bitterness and resentment and pushback and, you know, all those things, hatred? And how do you, how do you hold on to hope?
1: Well, certainly I come from a tradition of people who get knocked down and I was taught to get back up. Eventually you may not get up immediately, but you get back up and that comes from from remembering that your source is god uh, and so for for me it's uh I, i'm I, I'm not necessarily trying to uh um, to change I'm not trying to change the external environment necessarily. I'm trying to change the internal environment, which I think will then lead to a change in the external environment. It's like Thurman believed that you can change all the laws you want, but if you don't change people's hearts, it's not, what have you done? You're not going to, it's not going to really make any real change. And so the more people that are awakened um, to their spiritual natures, I think it's better for everybody um and my and, and that's my calling. I I think people are called in all sorts of ways. It may not necessarily be in this domain, but it's still spiritual. You know, you could be a musician and still be very spiritual. You you know, you could be a um a diver and it's still about something very spiritual. And so it's it's utilizing that call not just for you and building your own career and your own resume but you're doing something that is going to be for the greater good i think that's when you get into calling it's not it it becomes less about you and more about us
2: john wesley the the reluctant founder of methodism i think it's like that with everybody buddha was always a hindu and you know, Jesus was always a Jew, but, and John Wesley was always an Anglican. Um, He never left the Anglican church, but he talked about during his day, there was this movement around spiritual practices and contemplative. He called quietism so that, you know, you, you did all your nice spiritual practices, but your life was quiet. It really didn't change anything. Uh, did howard thurman or even in your own wisdom come come up i don't know against that if is the right word or uh, experience that how how do we not just use spiritual practices as you were saying to find our own happiness or materialism trump or Rinpoche called it a spiritual materialism we you know we just from the tibetan buddhism what what would be your advice on that, or your thoughts?
1: Well, I think there's always been some resistance to incorporating spirituality, either in many institutions. Uh, I, I I smile because even in my own field of of psychology, uh, there was resistance. You know, William James was talking about a spiritual self back in 1892, but people didn't wanna hear it because it sounded either anti-scientific or um, too philosophical, etc. cetera. And I suspect that there has always been a fear on the part of institutionalized religion, that if people find a way to directly connect with God, why would they come to church? So then there'd be no organization and no money and you know, all those kinds of things, right? but that 's not necessarily the case. I mean, I think uh, we always are seeking union and connection uh, and so uh, it it would be very important as people may or may not want to learn more doctrine or dogma to also be feeding their spirits. I think we 'd have a lot more people in church if that were part of it, and certainly uh Howard Thurman's life lives that out. I mean, he started an intentional interracial church in San Francisco. And they had a number of members, not only there, but uh, members at large from all over the world where uh, he incorporated some of these spiritual practices into the worship service or into the life of the church. It wasn't like, okay, so there's that contemplative prayer group that meets on Wednesday Uh, but that he had time for silent meditation before worship. He had time for silence as part of worship. Um, He played around with liturgical dance in the 30s. He uh, introduced living Madonnas, that is, you know, the live ones, um, to just sort of see if he could inspire some more spiritual uh, unity because his belief was that spirituality could not be taught, but it could be caught. So there was this idea of contagion and that uh, if there were enough people engaged that you could be pulled in. And he actually had that experience in a Quaker meeting one time where he was, you know, pulled into the uh, the group. Uh, So I think he believed that there was the possibility of uh, incorporating certain spiritual practices into the life of the church so that it was not something on the side, but it was integrated. And in some of the circles that I move in, there's a contemplative reformation, a nice word for it, contemplative reformation, going <laughs> on right now in many churches uh, where people need and want more activities that are going to help them to connect with themselves spiritually. Uh, I I, I don't know uh, what it's gonna take to get, you know, to bring everybody on board, but I suspect that that's really um, the answer to the uh, decrease in attendance and uh, membership in a lot of churches. Uh, that if it were part of the active part of, if it were part of the the general life of the church, that it would not be um, so difficult. But let me just say that eagles are hard to uh, deconstruct. And for a lot of people, spirituality is scary because as part of becoming or recognizing that you're a spiritual being, you also have to surrender. You're not in charge. You are listening to the guidance of the Spirit. And that's really difficult in, in the kind of world that we live in, where we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And uh, this is on the other side of the continuum, where you have committed yourself to Spirit and you are about... Uh, Listening for guidance to do where and to be wherever you need to be so that you can be a vehicle for God's message, God's love into the world. I mean, you know, we think about people in in monasteries and in convents doing that, but uh, I think we're all called to do something uh, like that.
2: And it it is difficult, isn't it? It, it's counterintuitive to our current way of life. Uh, and it seems, I love that you share that there's this process of surrender and from, from your own book and experience, and then your work with Howard Thurman, it seems like surrender and forgiveness are, are part of, are part of the practical spiritual practices like maybe sometimes it's daily or, or or every second, depending on what's happening. It's uh, that, that, that we're called to this. Uh, what would you uh, share from your experience of uh, how, how to embrace this and work with it? And from Howard Thurman, too.
1: Well, you know, I, I have not. Well, Howard Thurman does mention forgiveness in some of his meditations. I mean, he doesn't have a particular book on it, et cetera. Uh, but but the, but his idea is that forgiveness leads to um, unity, and he was always about uh, we are all one. And so, if in fact there is uh, something that is separating you from another person, then uh, there needs, you know, you need to do something about that. I mean, he talks a bit about it, but not using those terms in Jesus and the disinherited. But I think that, uh, you know, there's that famous line about uh, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Uh, it is poison for us to hold resentment and um, anger and all of that, uh, I mean, they've been able to show physiologically that it's not good for us. Uh, It's almost as if it takes over your mind and you just are ruminating. And so what I found is, I mean, I I have a forgiveness practice. I mean, I I certainly do have a prayer list, but I have a forgiveness list (laughs) that I go through regularly. And the criteria is that uh, I if there are some people who have either offended me or done things that I thought were uh, not quite right, that they stay on the list until I can feel compassion instead of resentment, Um, when I can feel uh, neutral or positive about them, um, or when I can feel like I'm blessing them for their greater good. And it's, it's really, I think sometimes people jump to forgiveness too quickly. I don't know how somebody, you know, can have a murder in their family and say, oh, "Well, I've forgiven the person in what two weeks or something." It just doesn't seem to see, seem to fit with what my experience has been. I think it takes time, and the longer that uh, the situation went on, usually the longer it takes. You know, I always say a year for every ten. Right? <laughs> but I mean because you know there's all kinds of be there's so many of us out there that need to forgive a parent or both or need to forgive someone in our family or someone on the job or you know in some place where some you know we are felt that someone has done us some harm and so uh, it, it may take a while, but I think the practice of it is important and that when we do find ourselves ruminating and uh, upset that that's the very time when you know we, can pull that list out and and uh, begin to uh, engage in that practice. I've, I'm sure people, a lot of people will laugh, but I've had a number of political figures on my list off and on over the years. It just depends on who happens to be in leadership at the time.
2: <laughs> well, right now it's pretty big.
1: <laughs> I, I Well, you know, at the end, I always say, so-and-so, and
2: the whole shebang, you know. <laughs> yeah. We, right now with COVID-19, uh, with we're facing, you know, environmental catastrophe that we sort of are um, checked out of. Uh, yourself in the United States have, I'll be kind, such interesting stuff happening It's sort of like a wake-up call. If someone was listening for the first time to this podcast and maybe don't have much of a spiritual life, what would you say to them in these really, for some people that are really dark and challenging times, what would you say to them today around spiritual practices and a a life that's waiting for them?
1: Well, I would say that they need to be... this This is a fabulous time to be working on yourself. Uh, Particularly if you are limited in your ability to move about, um, that it's a great time for doing some self-examination. And to uh, begin to work on those areas that you think are either preventing you from moving on or keeping you from some good in your life. uh, And that, each of us, each one of us needs to be the light. It is very dark, uh, but we need to work on uncovering our own light, what's in the way, if, if it's not shining bright, um, to, and to remember that God is the source, so that, so that, it, that we, we're not either spiraling down or spiraling ahead, but staying in the present moment. There's only really the present moment, but if we could just do with today, what, what is spirit calling you to do today? What do you need to do today? Because it's really what happens today that's going to have an impact on what may happen next week or next month or next year, et cetera. There are certain things that I have no control over. Um, some of that has to do with the chaos going on in the United States, right? But I do have control over how I live each day. I have control over how and what I bring to other people. Uh, and I, I have control over how I listen and uh, carry out the guidance of the spirit. And so we are not the only people who have lived through dark times. Uh, I was recently discussing with a. Uh, clergy friend of mine, when we were talking about you know the uh, people wandering around in the desert for forty years, right? And he said, "Well, you know, uh, I, I think it was maybe Walter Brueggemann that said that doesn't really translate to forty years. It translates to as long as it takes." And so, unfortunately, I suspect that there's going to have to be more suffering that will occur in order for people to wake up. Um, And it's unfortunate that it has to be suffering that occurs to wake people up. But that was my experience. I had to go through a lot of physical suffering to wake up. And I'm now grateful for the heart transplant and all the kidney transplant, dialysis, all those things, because it woke me up so that I can now walk through the valley of the shadow of death which is basically what this is like, and fear no evil, you know. And I'm not one of these people who uh, is out there saying, oh, I'm not paying attention to that. I'm just going out and doing whatever I want. No, Spirit has not directed me, you know, to to be out and about. But she, she has directed me to do things like this, to, you know, to lead retreats online to uh, read and to write um, things that other people will be able to read. This is a great time for that. Uh, to you know grow green beans so I can give them away. Um, or you know the other day I gave away some cash. I had a friend that you know sort of moves in about those communities and I said look here, I'm putting this money in these envelopes and each envelope said God loves you, keep the faith, right? And I just told him, I said, when you run into somebody who's desperate, who doesn't know how to, they're gonna you know, buy food for their family or doesn't know how they're gonna pay their rent, just give them one of these envelopes. I can do that, I'm not spending any money, right? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and yes. so, and I got a text the other day from you know, one of the people that he'd handed them to, a, a young woman and she just said, thank you and I'm about to cry, right? So there's so many th- little things that we can be doing in this moment, in this day. Uh, and I, I watch limited news. I think it's toxic because it's you know over and over again. And so I watch enough news to make sure that I'm not violating some local ordinance <laughs> or something and, and that I sort of generally know what's happening on the national or international front. But I don't need to keep that stuff on all day long. It, it, there's so, you know, I, I have a ton of books I want to read, movies to watch. There's just so many other things to be doing that are going to feed my spirit, and not my ego, because that that other stuff that's just ego stuff, right? Division and chaos and confusion and all that. I'm I'm not feeding that part of myself. And they say, you know, the part you feed is the part that expands, right? What you think about all the time is what expands, And so I'm, 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 I'm listening for my guidance. And, uh, I know, uh, that when I am following the guidance of, of the spirit, that it's for always for the greater good that, you know, and I, I firmly believe that every time I sit in, in stillness and in quiet with God, it's not just for me. Um, I've always felt that probably some monks chanting eight hours a day someplace else in the world help wake me up. So when I sit, I don't sit just for myself. I sit for the larger whole to help wake up people so that they can cannot be suffering, either psychologically suffering, emotionally suffering, all the suffering that people are going through. Um, I I firmly believe that uh, we all can play a part in ending that suffering, but we just need to be listening for our part.
2: I'm curious, how do you listen to your heart instead of your ego noise? And where does it lead you?
1: Well, of course, what I I document in my book are conversations. I had conversations uh, utilizing the technique active imagination. And I think that's Uh, a possibility for everyone who's, or anyone who's interested in that particular technique. Certainly I have a inner knowingness that has developed over the years. And the problem that I run into is that sometimes I ignore it. So I will hear, it's time for you to stop working. You need to go eat or you need to Go to bed or whatever, and I'll just say, "Well, I just need to do one more thing," and I, I ha- I'm working on that because I know that the spirit is 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 on my side, trying to get me to do what I need to do, and I just you know it's kind of like uh, hidden no, hit, just sort of uh, turning it off and just keep on going. So, and I think that's important because I think a lot of us we 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 hear it. We, we feel it in our gut and we ignore that. And it's like the spirit is always trying to help us. Um, but lots of times we just don't pay any attention. Uh, certainly uh, uh, the, my illness got my attention. Uh, I was off on this, you know, ego trip of trying to become famous and all of that. And uh, uh, with, with lots of noise around that, you know my my inner critic was like ah oh, you're you're way behind and when are you going to catch up and all of that right and so uh i think it's important for us to practice listening to the spirit listening to our hearts we we know when it's talking to us um and not get kidnapped by that other voice that other chatter that says oh you're not going to be able to do that and no and why are you even calling that person all of that right that's just eagle chatter it's just eagle noise on occasion i have gotten what i call direct audibles because my my wisdom doesn't come in words typically i just kind of know but when i've been in a situation of danger or super important. So in my book, I describe how the night before my transplant, this little voice said, where's your beeper? And I kept saying, oh, I don't know, I'm too tired. And it kept coming back louder and louder. Where's your beeper? Where's your beeper? Where's your beeper? Right. And so I finally got up and went and got my beeper, which is on my purse somewhere in some other part of the house and came back and threw it on the floor. And of course, then it went off. And I often think about what if I would have missed that heart, right? So for those of us who tend to ignore um, the inner, no, the inner uh, knowingness or to uh, get kidnapped by the ego noise, uh, typically the spirit will find another way. I've had dreams when I've ignored it where the spirit will just make it really clear to me, look, you need to pay attention here because this is about to lead you into some serious danger. Or, uh, you know, I will hear, I, I, I used to refer to this voice as uh, Gertrude, my guardian angel of needless suffering. <laughs> She's the one who will say, oh, don't take that. You're gonna lose that if you take that on this trip, <laughs> right? So there's the simple things, but then there's the bigger things like, you need to go find your beaver. <laughs> or you need to check to make sure your front door is locked tonight. <laughs> uh, and so I think we it's like God gave us this wonderful gift of spirit. It's it's like a GPS. It's our own personal GPS. I call it the God personal, you know, sort of guidance system, right? And so listen to it it's like everybody has there's not a person in the on the in the universe that does not have that so it's there to guide us you know through darkness or through wonderful times or whatever the case may be it is there to help us and we just need to follow it just like we do the one in the car because right? otherwise we're going to get lost <laughs>
2: Well, unlike your GPS in your car, you have to listen, don't you? Or or be attentive or or disciplined or you're end up somewhere you really don't want to be. Right,
1: if you don't if you don't follow it and you're someplace where you don't know where you are, yes, you're going to get lost. And, you know, there are many times life is just like that. You know, there are many times when we don't know what's about to happen next or we don't know what's going on. And so that's the time to just Take a moment. You know, many years ago, uh, Clarissa Pencola Estes wrote the lovely book, Women Who Run With the, the Wolves. And she says that most animals, when they don't know what's going on, they get still. And so that's such a lovely lesson that we can learn. When we don't know exactly what's going on, maybe we need to go someplace and be quiet and listen for, for the, the guidance from the inside out. I used to tell my students that all the time, they would laugh at me. i said, say, look, collect, you're gonna make a big decision, collect all your information, you know, about graduate school or a job or whatever, and then go sit underneath a tree. I was known as the professor that would tell you, go sit underneath a tree, and listen for the guidance from the inside. And that, that even though it may be against everything that you think, that is good, like this job isn't not paying as much money, or it will it's never wrong I mean because it's it can see far beyond the you know the next five years the next ten years um, and I marvel at the kinds of things that uh, I call her Sophia that Sophia does um, without my asking so
2: and and this presence that you're talking about is always there. And as you said, it's not like you, you sit under a tree and you get your whole life mapped out. It's like just for this moment. And then you have to come back for another moment and another moment.
1: There will be many times when you will need discernment. But trust me, the discernment that you get from the inside is much better than the information that you have on the outside.
0: This has been part two of a three-part series. Please join us for part three of this series as we discover with Professor Brown the life, work, and spiritual wisdom of the African-American mystic, civil rights activist, and teacher, Howard Thurman.